James chapter 4. Um, Cal Ripken is known as the Iron Man of baseball. He played over 2,000 games consecutively. Um, I think the average baseball season is around 162 games, and you got playoffs and so on. So, um, I, you know, I'm not quick on my feet in terms of mathematical calculations, but you can figure how many years that stretches over. Some of you sports fans may actually know, but I think it was 2,100 and something games, right at 2,200 games. Um, Brett Favre, starting quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, has started, um, what, 100 and something or over 200 uh, consecutive NFL football games. Remarkable by any standard, but particularly for a quarterback. Just unheard of. So baseball has their Iron Man and football has their Iron Man and Grace Evan and the evangelical community has its version of its Iron Man as well. Um, Brent Wilkins has been on staff for about eight or nine years. Is that right, Brent? And uh, he does not recall Dr. Young taking a sick day until this week. Went back a little bit further. As it turns out, recently these are the first six sick days that Dr. Young has taken in 25 years. So um, I would say he's got some days banked and do a few uh, sick days off. But anyway, please continue to remember him in your prayer as he's uh, struggling with... Um, some bronchial issues, and so we want to lift him up in prayer. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper together this coming Sunday, and I have every reason to believe, Lord willing, that Dr. Young will be here and will lead us in that, but I just encourage you to continue to remember him in prayer. James chapter 4. James uh, provides a series of tests by which we examine our faith as to whether it's authentic or not, whether it's uh, what James chapter 2 would call a say-so faith or a say-and-show faith. Um, James 2, for example, talks about an empty profession that merely professes a faith, but he goes on to say in James 2 that the demons believe and tremble. So there is a, there's a certain amount of faith then, obviously, that the demonic host have because they believe that God is, that He's the true and living God, and so on. But, of course, there's, there's nothing redemptive about the faith that they possess. So James provides a series of tests of a means of evaluating, of refining, of authenticating the genuineness of our profession. Some of those tests start in chapter 1. We're called to rejoice when we fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance uh, leads to a mature or a complete faith. And so there are the series of tests. And James chapter 4 opens with another kind of test, a test with which we're all familiar because we are Fallen, though now redeemed sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, it's the test of conflict, personal conflict. We live obviously in a fallen world, a flawed world, and because we um, have this incredible ability to love ourselves and to look out for number one, and we rub shoulders with other people who love themselves and look out for number one, we will inevitably um, have sparks that fly from interpersonal relationships. They will fly between husbands and wives. Uh, perhaps there's some here tonight and they're flying even as we speak. Um, they will fly between parent and children. They will fly in the workplace and athletic endeavors and so on because we are principally people who love ourselves and we're engaged in various levels of, of relationships and activities with other people who love themselves. And so James talks about that in James chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. And if you'll follow with me in your copies of God's Word all the way down through verse 10. 
The question is posed in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask in verse 3 and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And this unusual exclamation in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over your spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier had classic battles that spilled over to the wide world of sports. You guys remember that, wide world of sports? Uh, sometimes uh, it spilled over in an interview with Howard Cosell. Sometimes it made the sports page. But their ongoing conflict outside the room made for great publicity as uh, they had three fights together. Uh, more recently, you had an ongoing battle between uh, Tom Cruise and Brooke Shields over the use of antidepressants. Uh, Tom, a Scientologist, of course, has vast knowledge about all sorts of things. Um, then on a, on a much different level, you had this ongoing conflict between Donald Trump and Rosie O'Donnell. Um, and that spilled over. It made the national news. It made the newspapers. And it was great for the tabloids. Um, famous feuds, famous conflicts capture headlines. They make big news and big press and so on. But the reality of it is in our own personal lives... Conflicts and feuds make for a lot of heartache, a lot of brokenness, a lot of disappointment, and a lot of pain, emotional and otherwise. And so, in real life, we know that there's nothing fun or funny or humorous about interpersonal conflicts. And when conflict happens, as it often does, it gives rise to a whole family of emotions. It gives rise to um, self-pity. It gives rise to um, anger. It gives rise to um, escapism, to pouting, uh, to various um, angry actions or reactions. Uh, maybe if there's not some physicality involved, then there's certainly words are involved. Words are hurled like weapons. Maybe it degenerates into gossip or slander or backbiting or divisions or all kinds of ramifications take place when we find ourselves in, in, engaged or involved in conflict. And we typically deal with conflict by, by our natural reaction. We deal with, with the why of conflict by answering with a who question. It's your fault. It's him or it's her or it's them. But in James chapter 4, the why question, God through his truth doesn't point at who, as in someone out there, it zeroes in on you and it zeroes in on me. 
Because that's the first question that's, that's really posed in the text is, where do these conflicts, where do these wars, where does this strife come from? Rather than what we normally do, pointing away, the Scripture zeroes in and aims God's truth directly at our hearts. And it exposes what goes on within the heart because at the end of the text that we read, the point of the exposure is that it drives us to a greater grace. It drives us to repentance. It drives us to humility. It drives us to brokenness. And it drives us to a God that the text says gives more grace. And the implication is it, the implication of the text at near the end of the passage is that God gives a greater grace, a grace that's greater than the conflict, a grace that's greater than the argument that we find ourselves involved in, a grace that's greater than our own sin-loving and selfish natural inclinations. And so, Lord willing, tonight we'll end up in the midst of an incredible grace that God works into our lives. Now, the wonderful kindness of God is that God gives us a lens through which to look at life. That lens is called Scripture. That's how Calvin referred to God's Word. He he called it spectacles or glasses through which we're able to see God. And having seen God, we're able to see ourselves. And having seen ourselves, it drives us to the truth and beauty and power of the gospel. The psalmist said something similar in Psalm 19. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect because it's able to convert or it's it's able to transform, to sanctify, to change or to alter our souls. And the psalmist says in Psalm 119 in, in verse 130 that the, the unfolding, this is from the, the English Standard Version, the unfolding of God's truth in our lives leads to understanding. We see ourselves, we see the greatness and the glory of a Savior, and we're driven to the kind of grace that comes only from the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you um, may have read a book, I think it's even in the, the bookstore here, and that's not a criticism, it's just a, just an honest observation, but you may have read a book that, that talks about the five love languages. And a wonderful Christian author, and, and I'm, I don't mean this as any sort of criticism whatsoever toward the man or toward the book, but in the book he describes us as being empty love tanks. And um, so there are five ways that we communicate love, and there are five ways that we receive love. Anybody familiar with the book? Well, the reality of it is, is, is our tanks are not really very empty at all. They're quite full to the brimming over of a lot of self-love, a lot of pride, a, a lot of uh, presumption, a lot of hostility and anger. And so you could actually use the five love languages as a selfish means to serve oneself and to um, to actually gratify pride, presumption, and self-love. We have a boatload of desires. We brim over with them. And that's what James chapter 4 is saying, that the initial place when you and I are involved in a conflict is to not look at the other person, though that's our natural tendency, is to use that occasion as a means to self-examination, to hold the lens of Scripture up to our own lives, and to not answer the who, but to answer the why. And the text does exactly that. And I want you to notice that the larger context, and, you know, I, I frankly, I believe that the smart board makes a dumb man look dumber. So... <laughs> We'll see if this thing's going to work tonight. Look at the larger context. If you go to James chapter 3, you start at verse 1, verse 2. There's an extended passage there on... Uh, hmm. Hmm. Have I done something wrong? 
Mr. Wilkins, sir. Let me hit the erase, correct? Erase. Okay, you hit it. Okay. If you're listening by tape, folks, we've just had a technical malfunction. Um, all right, uh, James chapter 3, 1, start in verse 2. We're, we're introduced to the whole concept of words. And what follows is a very penetrating insight into the, the, the grand potential or the devastating potential of the power of words, of what we say. We have a remarkable ability to bless people. And we have an equal, re, equally remarkable ability to blister people. In fact, there are several illustrations that are listed in uh, James chapter 3 for the, the power of the tongue. It's compared, for example, to a bit in a horse's mouth. It's compared to a rudder on a very large ship. And it's compared words. The tongue is compared to a spark that ignites a forest fire. Fire. So if you consider these illustrations or these metaphors, the power of your words can scarcely be underestimated. In fact, um, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Remarkable ability with what you say to build up or to tear down. Uh, a little bit later in the chapter, it talks about what fills the heart comes out of the mouth. For example, it talks about um, it talks about uh, the, the the ability of the tongue to inflame, to to incinerate, to excite. Um, a little bit later in James chapter three, it talks about what flows out of the heart, both blessing and cursing, sweet water, salt water, and so on. These things ought not to be. And so, if you really want to engage in self-examination, read very carefully and very closely what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through the pages of Scripture about the power of our tongue. Notice verse 5, for example, the tongue's a small member, yet it boasts great things. Verse 6, the tongue's a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members in verse 6 so that it stains the whole body and sets on fire the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell. So when you and I are engaged in conflict, words have the ability to exaggerate and accelerate the conflict. Proverbs 15.1 says that words generate strife. A soft answer turns away anger, turns away wrath. Now, then you go down to verse 13, and James talks about not just about words, but he talks about the kind of thing that animates our life, the kind of wisdom or the kind of, um, the kind of perception or the way that we see things, the way that we see a situation. And what he talks about there is um, he talks about wisdom. And he talks about two sources of wisdom. See that starting in verse 13? There's a wisdom, he says... That's from beneath. And this, there's a wisdom that's from above. Two sources of wisdom. The wisdom that's from beneath, he calls it earthly. And depending on your translation, it will either say sensual, or it will say the English Standard Version says unspiritual. That is, your life is animated either by a perception of life that is rooted in in um, earthly values, 
a perception that's not filled or empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's based on what you see, what you smell, what you taste, what you touch, the senses, it's sensual. And he then even uses a stronger word, he calls it demonic in chapter 3. The wisdom that's from above is even demonic. And not only the two sources, but he talks about two outcomes as to what is animating your life. The wisdom that's earthly, sensual or unspiritual, that's demonic, leads to chaos. It leads to strife. It leads to even greater conflict. Let me show you this from the text. Look at verse um, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. It's not the wisdom that God gives because it's earthly and spiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So the outcome of this kind of wisdom leads to even greater conflict, even greater chaos, and even greater disruption. But he says there's a wisdom that's from above that God gives, that God imparts. And notice the outcome of that wisdom. He says, first of all, in verse 17, it's pure, it's peaceable. It's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial and sincere. And the result of that in verse 18 is peace. So in every conflict, you have words that are being said. You have a life that's being animated by either something that is that is earthly and self-serving, or you have a life that's being animated by the purity, the beauty, and the glory of wisdom that's from above, and the outcomes of that are very different. And you say, well, what does all that have to do with, with conflict? Well, just very quickly, when you get to the, the text that we read together this evening, James chapter 4. Oh, what did I tell you? It makes a dumb man look dumber. Um, when you get to James chapter 4, this is really challenging. To erase a board that has nothing on it. This will definitely uh, definitely appear on future resumes. I can erase boards with nothing on them. Um, how about that? Hey. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, you've got wisdom. You've, you've got words, you've got wisdom. And then, look. Oh. Ah. All right. You've got... Let's call it your will, or let's call it your way. This is what I want, um, and I intend to have it. I intend to get it. And this is where James chapter 4, with unerring insight, zeroes in on the real source of our conflict. It's less about you, and it's more about me. It's more about what's going on in my heart. When we desire something we're not getting, we fight because the desire is not being met. Because we're not getting what we want. Our expectations are not being fulfilled. And there's a, there's a whole dynamic that's taking place here that James chapter 4 goes into in quite some, quite some detail. For example, it talks about, James 4 talks about the whole dynamic of desires that that cause conflict, it raises the question, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? There's a direct connection between my will or, or let's say my desires 
that flow out of my heart and uh, the conflict that I find myself engaged in. It starts in here before it's ever out there. Do you follow that? The conflict starts in here before it ever shows up out there. What conflict actually does is it surfaces something that's going on in my life, um, something internal that may be expressed externally. Now, the heart in Scripture is the is the site of true religion. It's less about external and more about about internal. For example, the heart in Scripture is composed of, of the mind, the understanding. You you see something, you understand it, you have clarity about something. The heart is composed of of affections or desires. You long for something. You aspire for something. You crave something. And in the Scripture, it's not just the mind where the understanding is located, where the conscience functions as judge, jury, and executioner or acquittal. It's not just the desires, the affections, but the will is also engaged. Uh, listen, our wills are never neutral. There's no such thing as, as being your will being in neutral. The will is the instrument of action, but it's always motivated. It's always engaged by desire, by something you want, and it leads to action. It leads to choice. It leads to engagement. And when salvation comes to us, we were blind, Second Corinthians 4, we were blind and the Holy Spirit illuminates our understanding so that we apprehend our sin and our need for Christ. When the Holy Spirit comes, He begins to change our heart and whereas we had nothing but complete indifference for the things of God, suddenly now there's a stirring in our lives and we want to know more about His truth. And now we love Him and we want to worship and serve Him. And so then the will is engaged and it's activated. And that's how conflict begins to develop, or that's the, the process, the dynamic of conflict as well. When we're angry, we blame someone else or something else. But James says, no, the first place you need to look when you're angry, the first place you need to look when, when you're involved in a conflict in your marriage, you're involved in a conflict within your family, you're involved in a conflict in the workplace, the first place you need to look is not to shift the blame and the focus. The first place you need to look is really what's animating and ruling and governing your lives. The word that's translated here, passions, is the word um, uh, hedone in the Greek text. We get the word hedonism from it. So it's a desire for what? Pleasure, comfort, tranquility, ease, money, convenience, control. Not necessarily bad things. It doesn't say evil passions. It just says Passions, just whatever you're longing for, looking for, desiring, cultivating. The truth is that desires proceed and determine and shape everything about us. And that's exactly where the truth of God goes. It goes to our hearts, where every decision is ultimately made, where every reaction is, is formed, where every word is incited, where Every heated act and thought and reaction is governed and because what really happens and the, route, the, the, the bottom line truth is, look, whatever controls your heart really controls your life. That's why, for example, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart, guard it, protect it, because out of it flow the issues of life. 
All of life really flows out of the state and condition of your heart. The little phrase there, the passions that war within you, show how the heart operates. It's a world of competition as to who or what will rule over it. Something created, the creation, or will the Creator rule over our hearts? Who will rule the tense tense situation at work? Uh, The desire for promotion, will it be that what governs and animates you? Or is it the desire for God's glory and His greater purpose and usefulness in His kingdom? Who will rule the important conversation that we need to have with our child? Will it be uh, our desire for peace and quiet and control to manage them? To control them? To knuckle them under? Or will it be the larger end of a redemptive agenda and the furtherance of the gospel in their lives? Who will ultimately rule the relationship between you and your mom and dad? Will it be the desire to honor them as the seesaw now is tilt the other way where you're no longer under the everyday authority and oversight of your mom and dad, but you still have a, a function to honor them? Because that's what the Scripture lays upon us. It's a lifetime The moral law, honor your father and your mother. How that honoring takes place changes with the seasons of life. And it's a challenge at times. But who and what will govern your heart or your life? Will it be the truth of God or desire to get even or some other motivation? Who will rule the the child's heart, your child's heart? Will it be God that will rule or will it be their desire for their own independence and freedom and control and Who will rule over you in tough ethical choices? Will it be the fear of man or the fear of God? So James chapter 4 zeroes in on the real issues. And here's the the funny thing, I think the remarkable thing about our desires is that they have a funny way of becoming demands. They have a remarkable way for for turning into, um, put it in my pocket, they have a remarkable way for de, for desires for desires barely see that becoming demands and those demands become expectations and when expectations are not met there is Disappointment. And you know what follows disappointment? Punishment. And the form of punishment will suit your personality. You will either be a spewer or a seeper or a sabotager. But the form of punishment will fit your temperament and your personality. You will either escape or attack. You will either verbalize and punish, or you will pout. Or you will engage in a subtle form of revenge and get even. But this is the cycle in James chapter 4. My desires become a demand that I close my fist over. And I say, I will have it. And then it becomes an expectation. You know what? I should have it. And then when it's not met and I'm disappointed, I become angry and I act out of that. And so the the dynamic of this process then, sin is, listen, sin is so comprehensive 
It is so subtle, it is so penetrating, it is so pervasive that I, all of this dynamic, I will end up blaming you for it. And it's not even necessarily that your desires are bad. It might be a desire for respect. It might be a desire for more money and, and what money brings. The better house, the right school, the better neighborhood, the better vacation, the reliable transportation, whatever that it may be. But then suddenly these good things become ruling things in our lives. And they become a demand. And then suddenly I start expecting. You know, our whole culture today has a strange sense of, uh, of entitlement. Uh, we were talking, we were meeting as a staff today, and somebody uh, used the illustration of American Idol. How there's one judge on American Idol, you know, that's a little more brutal in his assessment. A little more British in his observations, if that gives you a hint. And uh, there's one that just kind of loves their spirit and is on the fence and doesn't know what to do. And there's one that always calls them an animal. Let's see, I think it's a dog. Um, but how it, how people on there, you, you can't believe they really thought that they could get through, that they'd make it to Hollywood. And so um, one of the things that surfaced, the staff person observed um, today in our staff meeting, was the observation by uh, by Ryan Seacrest that for the first time in some of these people's lives they're being told no. So they go on with an expectation they're going to make it. And when they don't make it, they're told, no, you know, this is just not for you. You're not good enough or whatever. Some of them flip out. Some of them sulk and pout and cry. But I'm telling you, this is the unerring process. You think about it, you can see it in the lives of your sons and your daughters. And you can see it in the reaction within your own marriage. You can see it in the whole dynamic with parent and children. Now, it's one thing to see it. It's another thing for it to change. And I could go on and on about this, but I'm, 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 running, out of, I'm running out of time here, so I, I want to be uh, sensitive to the middle of the week and your schedule and so on. But the, the, the truth is, when you get to verse 4, that this whole dynamic and duplicity of desires really challenges the rightful rule of God. We, uh, we begin to subtly substitute other things for the lordship of God, for His right to rule over us, for His, His lawful right, His redemptive right to, to ultimately govern our lives. Discontentment as opposed to being content with really what the Lord is doing. We all feel the tug of vanity fair to use the Pilgrim's Progress analogy that diverts our hearts from seeking a city with a permanent foundation whose builder and maker is God. And these competing desires even affect the manner and the motive with which we pray. Look at verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive, and then you go on and ask, and because you ask wrongly, you don't receive because you ask to spend it on your passions. Our ruling desires actually turn prayer into a menu of what we want God to do. And we tell the Lord, this is what we want. Bing, 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 bing. And then we're actually disappointed when the Lord doesn't answer all those requests or there's a long time period before those needs are met or those requests are answered. And so we become frustrated and infuriated because somehow we expect God, I'm being embellishing this, being a little facetious here, but because we expect the Lord of heaven and earth to meet our needs. And when our needs are not met, we have these expectations, we become disappointed. And we all know something about that. I do. I do. And if we're not careful, then the Scripture and the church and prayer becomes just another means to better management of our idols. 
We, we look at the Scripture as a means to manage life, to manage money, to better manage our children. And prayer becomes our ally to, to make sure that life is going comfortable and easy and things are turning out well for us. And we don't understand when things are not going well and so on. But you remember what Jesus said in Luke 11 and, and Matthew 6. Luke 11, the disciples heard him praying. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is how he started the prayer. Well, pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. First petition, first request. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the the first three petitions relate to a Godward focus in which I recognize that God is supreme and sovereign over my daily bread, over the temptations that I face, over the spiritual battles with which I'm engaged in, and having recognized the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of God, and God is the source of everything everywhere, then in a posture, not of demand, but of submission and servanthood, I say, oh, Father, give us, plural, there's not an I or a me in there, give us our daily bread, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why? Because yours is the kingdom, not mine, Yours is the power, not mine. Yours is the glory, not mine, both now and forevermore. And so even the desires of our heart begin to creep in and and manage our prayer list. And so where does all this lead us then? It leads us to verse 6, that the Lord of our desires, the one who really rules and reigns over our lives, gives us grace to transform us within. I, I love, this closes with tremendous encouragement. Because after locating the cause of conflict, God drives us straight to His grace for transformation. Verse 6, in the midst of all this, I'm going to give you a greater grace. James leads us to the only sure hope and transforming solution. The grace of an all-sufficient God. He says, I'm greater than your heart. I'm greater than the conflict. I'm greater than your desires. Greater than the demands and your expectations. I'll give you grace. I'll give you grace that will change your life from the inside out. So we're not left to slug it out with ourselves and other people in the survival of the fittest, either in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of men. We're left with a greater grace, a God who loves us too intensely to leave us at the mercy of interlopers and false masters that would rule and govern our lives, a God who actively opposes all that would substitute for His rule. And is willing to make us incredibly uncomfortable at times to change our hearts and our lives. Anybody here wear braces when you were a kid growing up? You know, the thing that I remember about them is when they would, uh, they would tighten the bands. Oh, man. It was uh, ice cream and soup for a couple of days as your teeth adjusted to the pressure because it took tremendous amount of pressure to straighten crooked teeth. Anybody ever ever had a broken bone that was set and put in a cast? Oh, the pain of having that which is dislocated and broken set and put in a cast. Anybody ever have surgery, ever have your gallbladder removed, your appendix removed, or anything else removed? Ever had knee surgery or whatever? Oh, the pain that's associated with the surgeon's knife and the recovery and rehabilitation that's associated with it. And oh, the pain that is associated with taking self serving selfish hearts like ourselves and transforming them into people who love Christ, who long to know Him better, 
who long to be more useful in His service. And in seasons of great conflict, go to the Scripture and allow it to serve as a mirror that shows us our hearts as they really are. Grace leads us to personal stories of great transformation from people who loved ourselves, who loved Jesus, and want to serve Him supremely. A greater grace. Good note to close on. A greater grace. Father, thank You for an abundant, overflowing, brimming grace that subdues our hearts, that changes us, that transforms us. And perhaps some of us find ourselves in in seasons of great pressure, uh, great stress. Maybe we find ourselves embroiled in some kind of conflict. Might You use the lens of Scripture to show us our hearts where we need further sanctification, to drive us to... uh, to specific intelligent repentance and to seeking you as the God of all grace. Toward that end we pray in Christ's name. Amen.